One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. So we've been exploring a host of different technologies that can have a role in improving dispute systems. Yet there's always the question of who actually has access to these technologies and whether a lack of access will exacerbate inequities in our society. So today, Convergence is on the road to the beautiful state of Kentucky. My guest is Joshua Crabtree, who is the executive director of Legal Aid of the Bluegrass. Yeah, I know, what a great name. Uh, his clinic provides support to low-income residents of 33 counties in Kentucky with a mission to be the lifeline of justice, safety, and stability in the communities he serves. As illustrated throughout the conversation, Joshua is a creative thinker with a strong understanding of the nuanced role technology can have in providing greater legal support to the communities he serves. So let's do this. Joshua Crabtree, welcome to Convergence. I am immensely grateful for you to join the conversation. I am happy to be here and uh, excited to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So a bit of a curveball. I'm, I'm thinking of Joshua Crabtree at 14 years old. Oh. And I'm wondering where in the world you were and what you were aspiring to become. Well, since my kindergarten graduation, I said I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> uh, now, I'm not any closer to being a Supreme Court justice than I was when I, when I was in kindergarten. But uh, for whatever reason, I was inspired by a couple of things. So, and I'll get to age 14. My, my grandparents practically raised me. My grandfather came home every day and would watch uh, Perry Mason. And my grandmother uh, on Thursday nights would watch Knott's Landing. And if that wasn't on, L.A. Law was on. And so that's what mm. we would watch. And so I say that those two TV shows made me want to be a lawyer, too. I think I actually was inspired by the the news. Uh, I recall Sandra Day O'Connor being nominated to the Supreme Court uh, when I was a small kid, just being aware of it. And maybe that was part of why I said Supreme Court justice. But by 14, I, I, I definitely wanted to be a lawyer. OK, uh, gotcha. That, that was what I wanted to be. There may have been a few steps in between there of other jobs I had. No, I'm one of those that wanted to be a lawyer from birth, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And what a goal to have in kindergarten to want to be on the Supreme Court. That That is a, a special goal. I'm sure like your kindergarten teachers must have been like, wow, we, we have a special one here. <laughs> a, a precocious one, anyway. <laughs> yeah. And... So did you did you grow up in Appalachia? So uh, I would be I grew up on what would be called the Upper Cumberland Plateau, uh, uh -huh. to be specific. Basically, all that means is we're on the the cusp of what I consider real Appalachia. We were okay. uh, South Central Kentucky, where I grew up, very rural community, a, a lot of poverty, not much industry, but you didn't know any better. Yeah. Um, kind of from experience. And so what would be different than what the more far Eastern Kentucky places is we were not as geographically isolated. 
I see. Uh, that that Eastern Kentucky kind of lends itself to in that real Appalachian region. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but for pure geographic standpoints, we're right on the cusp, on the plateau, is what they would say of Appalachia. Yeah, and I'm I'm always curious with with like cultural boundaries. Is is there a point where you would say yes, I am I am properly in this region? That's such That's a great a hard question. question. <laughs> well, it's a great question, kind of thing. I I think that that culturally, what defines most of that Appalachian region, in a sense, of course, I mean, it's I'm oversimplifying it, but when you look at uh, the coal industry, yeah. It can take, and if that was a predominant uh, driver in your community economically, then you were more in Appalachia than I was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you would go about two counties over from us. And in Kentucky, we refer to everything in counties. Um, yep. That's how we kind of divide up the world. Uh, because you know, most people say, oh, I'm from this city or I'm from this area. No, in Kentucky, we only talk counties. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it would be probably, I would say, 40, 50 miles to where you kind of, before you started hitting what were coal communities. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So now you are, you're, you're still based out of Kentucky, but now you are the executive director of Legal Aid of the Bluegrass. And, you know, I just have to say that is a great name. <laughs> that, it is, isn't it? I, I, is. I, I love it. I, I was actually thinking that, you know, to become executive director, you you must have been required to be a fan of bluegrass music. Like that must have been part of the the interview process. Well, it's really three B's in Kentucky: bourbon, basketball, and bluegrass. <laughs> and having a being a fan of horse racing doesn't hurt either. So yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm in. Uh, we're we're really the product of three mergers. Uh, Legal Aid of the Bluegrass. Uh, so that was our, we started off as Northern Kentucky Legal Aid Society, Northeast Kentucky Legal Aid, and Central Kentucky Legal Services. Then more than 20 years ago, when the last of those mergers occurred, mm-hmm. uh, the new name of Legal Aid of the Bluegrass came to be. And I am thrilled that that's what I inherited. For. Yeah. And one, it's a, it's a catchy name, but also I find it a beautiful name because it's a motif that brings together Kentucky, right? Like it's very, you don't have to focus on, and not just Kentucky, but many parts of Appalachia. And so you don't have to focus on a state's name per se, or a county name, but it's more of like a unifying motif that brings together different regions. It, it does. I mean, and that was what, you know, our, our logo itself, because of course I had to play off blue and a horse theme for Kentucky. The mane of the horse is supposed to be this flame of justice, but it brings in the three regions that I represent ah. are the three portions of this flame and of this mane that we have on the horse. Love that. Love that. So I was a bit curious to just hear about how the early moments of the pandemic, you know, we could, we could go back to, let's say, April 2020, how these moments in the pandemic affected your legal community's approach to resolving disputes. Sure. And I'm going to back you up even further. Yeah. (laughs) Because by providence or just 
chance, however you want to view it, in March of 2020, the four legal aid programs in Kentucky were in a retreat together in my service territory at a place called Shaker Village at Pleasant Hill. Mm. And it was a restored community of the Shaker religious tradition that was there. So, but if you had to keep it by pretty isolated and no technology. Uh, and we, we started our meeting on March 11th. And at lunch, they said, one of the staff members that was there said, oh, all of our people still calling it Corona then. Everybody was talking about the coronavirus in our program. What about yours? And I was just ignorant to really what was happening with it, kind of the extent of it. That night, the four directors sat down and we wrote continuation of operations plans uh, on the, the night of the 12th and on uh, the 13th at lunch, the government essentially shut down operations. The wow. governor issued his stay um, at home orders. Everything started closing and we left and headed back to our offices. So I know exactly where I was and who I was with, and it was all legal aid directors. Uh, wow. And so our courts completely shut down on the 13th and along with schools and everything else. And so for that next month or so, nothing really happened uh, in Kentucky. Wow. We were still just trying to, fortunately, uh, in, in the criminal world, they had uh, had been having remote arraignments and some remote kind of hearings for some time just for convenience in a lot of communities. But other than that, we had no kind of apparatus to make things work. Yeah. And so courts kind of shut down. We instituted our kind of continuation of operations plan. And within about 72 hours, uh, all of our employees were able to work from home except one. And we, you know, we kind of worked on that, but there wasn't a lot happening at that point. Yeah. I, for me, and it also sounds like for you, you know, those moments in March were just filled with uncertainty. And so I'm actually really impressed that you were able to develop a plan within only 72 hours, right? That That's not an easy task. What you, the Legal Services Corporation tells, you know, requires us and sometimes we've wondered why, but it totally made a lot of sense and thankful for it now was we had to have kind of disaster plans. Our disaster plan just didn't have a pandemic in mind. So we had a lot of other things that went, we had it kind of planned around. So we instituted it that with just some modifications. So it, no, it can't say entirely it was just a 72 hour thing, but we were, we were operating within 72 hours based on some existing plans. But what I, I learned from that too, is our court system didn't have a plan like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this, this is a theme around like access to justice, right? When courts shut down, there is this barrier, especially when there's uncertainty, right? It's not like the cases are all resolved, right? In fact, they're still going on, but now disputants just don't have a forum more or less to resolve those disputes since courts are, are shut down. And so I know that your legal aid community, you focus on low-income parties, and I'm quite curious how the groups of people you represent handled that uncertainty and also that impediment to the courthouse. In those early days, as a staff, we prioritized brought in my, my management team and leadership team and really kind of looking at some uh, things. We did our best guess to, to just kind of anticipate what the, the most immediate needs were going to be. 
and that's what we uh, focused on, which we at that point were housing cases um, <laughs> that we thought were going to be, and um, our domestic violence and interpersonal violence okay. cases. And so we thought those were the things that we would really ramp up for. And for just an example, one of the things we did is we did not, we posted everywhere. We were not allowing any clients in our offices at that point. And we weren't taking walk-ups except for interpersonal violence cases and housing cases if you were being locked out by your landlord. I mean, that was kind of the the narrow group that we were allowing in that, that we were like, we clearly can't cease this part of the operation. Our intake system would continue to work, but we didn't have anything to offer them. We could process their case. We could tell them that, you know, when we have a court date, what we would do, but nothing was really happening. So you're right. From an access to justice perspective, for most of our clients, the doors were closed and uh, nothing was going to happen for a period of time. And that was probably about a 60 day time frame where that kind of really felt like it was happening. The judges were, were trying, the judges were were granting orders, but weren't giving any kind of hearing on those orders. It was almost, they were just kind of saying, we'll give you a interpersonal protective order and it's just good yeah. until we can eventually get you to court. And then, you know, there were a lot of other developments at that time, but, but really that was a hard part was the, um, if you were just had a kind of a basic divorce kind of case with some issues, we couldn't do anything. Yeah. Because they yeah. weren't going to have a custody hearing on your case. I, I know one case that had been waiting for almost a year to have a hearing and they didn't have it for 16 more months. That's a lot of time to not be seeing your children based on the existing orders, except via Zoom or something, just because the courts couldn't figure out how to process those at the time. Yeah. Wow. That's such a challenging moment. And Really, kudos to you and your team for identifying housing, interpersonal violence, and domestic violence as uh, the the leading issues that were pressing enough to still draw attention and provide whatever limited support you could provide. And so I guess in the early innings of this, during that, let's say, 60-day period, there's also the question of what role the internet has and facilitative technologies like Zoom can have when physical separation is either required or preferred by the community you're trying to serve. So I guess I'm also wondering how you incorporated these technologies uh, into your practice. Oh. One of the key things that that shifted for me a bit during this time, and when um, I'm expanding my own thoughts and, and uh, kind of research around with our team, but it was uh, communications before for us had primarily been communications with the potential donors, uh, with community partners. It was communication around around some issues impacting people in in poverty within our LSC limits. I mean, it was just those kinds of trying to have some influential communications about those issues. That was really what our communications team was doing. And communications, and they handle all of our social media work, our Twitter, our Facebook, those things, our YouTube channel, was uh, 
it's really shifted to a service delivery model. Communications shifted from being this communications with this, you know, this, this group of people that might give us money or might support our program in some way to being a key component of how we advocate for clients. And so it really became a shift or transformation into service delivery. More and more people, we, you know, had we were updating COVID fact sheets daily around all of the kind of topics that we handle as new developers, and those were on our website. We were posting uh, short videos and were ended up on Instagram uh, eventually, you know, again, showing the same kind of things. And we, when we would have, it was a little bit longer before we started offering some virtual clinics, but that was just something too that all kind of came about. But our, our COVID resources page, people going to our website, all of those things drastically increased where people were just receiving assistance and then connecting with the program. So uh, our online intake uh, beefed up significantly during that time. The, the, there's a statewide website, which is probably has 200 to 300,000 visitors a year. And that's even a site that we have taken down right now. That's just a landing kind of page uh, while that gets relaunched. So the fact sheets on COVID-19 um, and resources that we were putting online for people, those were all hugely growing for us uh, and became a primary way of us for communicating with our, our client community. And so that was a, a big change. And then from the Zoom perspective, although I do have a goal this year of eliminating one of these programs I have because they've somehow have Zoom and Teams and WebEx and GoToMeeting and somebody, everybody uses a different one. Yeah. yeah. I, I just have a goal of just using one or you know, at least eliminating one from that group in this next year. But but it worked out because almost all of our clients had one iteration of one of those programs to be able to, to communicate with us. And so technology just, that was across our uh, service area, our 33 counties. The, you know, that was a, a big change that I saw. So now you know, I've shifted our communications team is not under the administrative side anymore. They kind of are uh, on our organizational chart. They're kind of right in the middle of in between the organizational side and the programmatic side, because that was the kind of change that we saw experience. So our communication people are out with our advocates and our outreach team with clients all the time now. So that's yeah. one kind of thing. And then talking about like Zoom, Hey, our clients have been very receptive to it. It's not been an issue. We did a gaps in services study that's a bit dated because we're doing a new one now, but, but five years ago when we did it. And we determined through that study, we were underserving 18 to 34 year olds in our service territory somewhat drastically. Yeah. And so the question is like, do 18 to 34 year olds not have legal issues? which is not the case, but it was just, we had a very traditional kind of phone book approach of how people became connected with us. And at Legal Ed, we don't want for clients at all. We have more than we can handle. So it was like, there was always the flow coming in. It was, so we really never really dug deep into who are we missing in that. With the Yellow Pages ad and everything, we were over serving 60 plus category. Interesting. And so we kind of just made some assumptions and looked at it and started making you know, part of our strategic plan and looking at it. Uh, but it was, we needed to increase the ways that people came into our intake. So we, we created online intake. We beefed up the website more than just a place to donate to us. 
Uh, and we really had, we created a social media presence and footprint that we had. So, and we have grown that age group of representation every year uh, since then. Oh, but Zoom was a new one for us. And fortunately I had this, we had this really bad experience happen. Not a bad experience, it was a great experience as a project, but with not great results. But like I said, I, I love to share the resu- these things that I learned from more than anything. Yeah. We had a, one of our rural communities or more rural than others, a hospital system there really wanted to research telehealth. This was about five years ago and uh, actually longer than that, uh, probably six or seven years ago. So they gave us a grant and said, you have a great benefits advising team that you have. And we're also a, uh, Benefits Enrollment Center for the National Council on Aging. So whenever a senior would call in with us, they are screened for about 38 benefits that might be a ben- that they might qualify for, no matter what they call about. Huh. Uh, so that's a program that had worked really well for us. And so this hospital system said, we would like to contract with you to, con- to see about doing benefits advising to seniors. And we've determined that this particular county uh, is the uh, most tech savvy <laughs> group of seniors that you should try this with. It's the home to Center College. They have a lot of retirees from there, people who are comfortable with technology. We would like you to do that because that's where we're thinking we would expand this. So we did it. We launched this project. Uh, it went for a while and then we did kind of the focus groups and did all the follow up to that. And what we discovered was they hated it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, great. So it's like, well, okay, well, tell me. What is it about this that you, you hated and you didn't like? And the response really was, we don't have any problem using technology. We're okay with that. What we're not okay with is being responsible for setting up all of the technology and making the technology work and, and using those platforms to make that happen. And when we learn that, that has driven so much of what we do now and how we, we incorporate technology into our, our services. And so that and then one, one experience that we had with court around here, I started asking some of the judges, how's your experience with Zoom and Zoom court? Yeah. And they said, you know, off the record, just being very honest, they're, they're, they're like, you know, when we can't hear somebody, we can't see somebody, yeah. we're not sure what they're saying, they can't get their tech, they can't get it to work. We've just got to move our docket along. Yes, we just sometimes just make decisions. We don't really treat people as kindly or fairly as we should, and we just move on. Yeah. And so we set out to kind of remedy that on our end and created Zoom rooms in each of our offices. Huh. So each of our offices has a courtroom that's a zoom room where our clients get to come in that are kind of to the best that we could covid proofed uh, there's plexiglass dividers in the room there's enhanced ventilation there's extra lighting that is put in extra sound kind of equipment to make our clients put their best foot forward in how they appear to the courts and so what i will say is across our entire service area the 33 counties and i only i have a few urban areas but the vast area of our service here is very very rural nobody had any problem using zoom or going to court with zoom as long as they had some assistance setting it up yeah and so they and using our zoom rooms to make that happen yep that makes so much sense and what what you've all shared is is fascinating to me so you know this podcast is all about technology and dispute resolution and just in your description of your org chart 
where like the communications department's use of technology now the communications department moves more central in the org chart because technology is being used as a tool to promote awareness and as a service delivery. I find that so fascinating because th that in many ways has been like the aspiration of people in the past. And sometimes the level of reception or the use case may not have been there for this transition. And so I'm, I'm really glad to hear that the use of technology with your communications department is, is playing more of a central role due to the pandemic. And it's also interesting to me what, what you described around the age demographics and how the way I interpreted it is that age demographics have different preferences, which is not surprising. And the implications of that is for access to justice, because if we are in the physical world relying on yellow books, then there can be an under-servicing of, as you described, the 18 to 34-year-olds. And then if you transition away from that model and only provide the opportunity for technology to be a service delivery tool, then that could also lead to an underservicing of older folks like 60 year olds. So, so all of that has like such important implications for access to justice. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And the one thing that I find surprising is that it doesn't seem like internet speed and connection is much of an issue for the clients, regardless of their age demographic. It's more, or where they live in Kentucky, it's more focused on providing them with the infrastructure, like the Zoom rooms that you have created for them? Well, I, I, I would have to kind of qualify that, but where I think you're, you're right on those things. But the biggest divide that has occurred for our clients and what I have experienced is the people in our rural areas that lack broadband lack yeah. any kind of internet quality there's some of our service area that that is not that is not serviced by any of the major cell networks that verizon sprint t-mobile doesn't work there i mean they are are some small so those that are using their phones which a lot of them are uh for that there those there are issues with that and yeah. so we have we also have a mobile office uh, oh, cool. our justice bus uh, <laughs> i love that <laughs> It's a converted uh, Mercedes Sprinter van, and it actually came about during the, uh, after our gaps in services study, uh, transportation being a barrier for everyone that kind of mentioned in these focus groups we were having. And I was like, well, we're not the transportation industry. We're not the <laughs> transit authority. I can't figure out transportation, but we can do this. And so even before the pandemic, we were trying to explore how to, to use pro bono attorneys in our more populated areas to service rural clients. And also through our GIS mapping, looking at which communities we were underserving and what we, you know, all these little data points coming in and, and different ideas that we had, we, we figured out that the places, communities that we were underserving were about all about an hour away from one of our offices. Um, and they were the only areas that were an hour 
or a little bit more than an hour away. So we identified those two, 10 counties as some underserved counties we wanted to enter, increase our representation of. And so hence the justice bus came about, but it uses a satellite internet technology uh, that we have to use there, but it's where our clients can come and meet on the bus and use that technology. Uh, I see. To kind of communicate. So that is a big barrier in a lot of our places, although uh, it was reducing. I am, I'm currently, I, I, I served a term on the school board several years ago. And uh, so I stay connected in that realm a lot. In some of our communities, the, they were just having to put hotspots essentially on school buses and drive them to neighborhoods in our rural areas and just park the bus and kids would, their parents would drive them in their cars and they would sit beside the bus and do work. Schoolwork. So, so that was that was probably the most shocking divide of all. Even more than kind of the was the who could have access to internet during the pandemic. The state is seems to be working on and and have they've been working on it for a decade or longer. But it's I think put into hyperdrive of how they're going to try to solve that. Yeah, totally. And well, one I, I think it's really innovative what you've done with the justice bus. And it's also innovative what the school district has done with having buses with hotspots going to the communities to allow them access to the internet for schooling purposes. And, you know, so I'm, this, this conversation, it's making me think back uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited as a guest lecturer to Columbia, the country, not the school. And I wish I could have been there physically, but it was it was just remotely. And it was a university, a law school with the University de los Andes, Andes, uh, with Professor Nicholas Para Herrera. And, you know, I, I gave a lecture, a presentation on how online dispute resolution is opening up avenues for people to resolve their disputes with more flexibility. And then, you know, I gave a caveat that I am in, I'm speaking to people in Colombia right now and in rural parts of the country, it's not like access to the internet is large enough for online dispute resolution to have the benefits that many people want it to have. So it was, and, and then I'm currently based out of Chicago right now, and I can just drive a, a few hours to Southern Illinois and Southern Illinois experiences similar problems to some of the counties in Kentucky that you serve and also certain rural communities in Columbia. And Basically, I would struggle to find, I, I would have to rely predominantly on hotspots um, and data from my cell provider to, to make things work with the internet. And certainly if I wanted to resolve a dispute online, things would be really complicated. So you're, you're really raising this point that I find so important for access to justice when we talk about online dispute resolution, which is like, sure, ODR can give flexibility to disputants. It can give flexibility to mediators and arbitrators who are engaging with these technologies. And yet 
there is a threshold question of who actually has access to the internet. And if you don't have access to the internet, then online dispute resolution can be really inequitable to a certain extent. And, and so one of the students, and these were brilliant law students, just, I was, I was so impressed. And one of the students made the case for why Colombia, and I would even extend that to America for why these countries should recognize access to the internet as a fundamental right so that inequities don't become too prominent in these communities. So I, I was, you know, just after what you shared, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on making access to the internet a fundamental right. Oh, that's a great question. And, um, and it's, and you're going to get this like horrible law school answer. Of, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, because there's some things I think that are fundamentally essential that we, I, I want some people to recognize yeah. <laughs> first. I'd like one of my, of my prioritization list of, of <laughs> rights. Um, but it's not what I'm opposed to either uh, by any means. And um, but I think was what you were, you were saying is there's so many opportunities to resolve these disputes that open up that with technology being available and the yeah. flexibility of the things that can happen, but you have to have an infrastructure to, to make them function. Yeah. And it, it goes back to back in my days when I worked in politics sub and there was some more, more in tune with a lot of policy kind of things on uh, in this, not in this technology area, but it was the importance of roads and it was yeah. always, you have to have roads. It doesn't matter what we, what kind of relief we're trying to give you, what services we're trying to provide. Uh, if we don't have roads that can get you there or get the stuff to you, there's not much relief that can be offered. And the internet's the new road in a lot of ways. I mean, Absolutely. the broadband access. And if we can't do that for people, it just isolates even more those rural communities that just geographically, like I was talking about Appalachia earlier, that were so that are so isolated. And yeah. so definitely not opposed to it by any means. And, um, yeah. and there's, a, you know, it's hard to find an argument otherwise. <laughs> yeah. And for, for some of the law students that I was speaking with, they were concerned about online dispute resolution because of the current inequities for access to the internet. And it was like, if, if ODR becomes more of an expectation rather than an opportunity for resolving disputes, then that could leave a large amount of the country and the people who need it a significant amount that could leave them completely out of the courts. And so what, what you mentioned around basically making sure that the infrastructure is in place is also something that I actually think a lot about and care a lot about. And ODR, online dispute resolution, is just filled with innovators. And the innovation is usually focused on the platforms itself, whether it's like facilitative technologies like Zoom and how courts use facilitative technologies, or whether it's with like, now they're, they're blockchain online dispute resolution platforms, Jirda.io and Kleros and a handful of others. 
and, and so the focus is typically on the platform itself rather than how we can get people onto those platforms. And so your reference to these, like the justice bus or even having a Zoom room in your offices where people can use Zoom, I think is, is so important and will become increasingly important as, as online dispute resolution gains greater prominence. Absolutely agree. And one of the things that, and you mentioned this with, with the school and you mentioned some of the stuff that I did. I, I have been amazed during the pandemic. I'll, I'll use the word thrappy is the word. It, it, they're, they're both thrifty and scrappy in the nonprofit yeah. world, these other places. But finding ways to make it work, mm. whether it's taking the bus with the hot spots to sit in a neighborhood so that people can get it, um, you know, the, the, the variations that we have had to do to make those things work. I've just been impressed by the, the ingenuity of so many people with it. And what I have kind of organizationally, what it has kind of made me do is expand that list of, in my mind, in, of people that we try to partner with and ways that we try to create relationships so that we can identify more entry points into how people are accessing justice. And as we identify those, equipping them with the ability to have technology for people to have the court hearing or mm -hmm. participate in online dispute resolution or any kind, you know, meet with their lawyer, whatever it may be. So it was kind of like, how do we expand that with our public libraries? Yeah. Um, you know, Every county in Kentucky, no matter how small or rural, has a public library. It may not be staffed that often um, <laughs> in some communities, or it can be a very robust program. But how can we make sure that that place becomes part of that access to justice menu of options you can choose from? Yeah. We were looking about how to expand those with our food bank networks. Yeah. And it's if people are coming there to get foods, can you also provide for them some technology to participate in their court hearing? The, the partners in access to justice had to expand beyond just the traditional players or what I at least view traditional players as. Totally. Yeah. So something that I'm just like, I'm just holding on to with my dear life, frankly, that has come about because of the pandemic is the opportunity for more collaborating opportunities with people that I may not have had the opportunity to do in the physical world, if you will. And the pandemic is really just both in terms of like how facilitative technologies like Zoom have become nearly ubiquitous and they have competitors, as you mentioned earlier, hopefully <laughs> there's, there's some consolidation for simplicity <laughs> purposes, but, but there, there really has been this pr proliferation and, in facilitative technologies. And that opens up so many different gateways for collaborating with different people. And, you know, I think a lot about ways to make platforms with online dispute resolution more inclusive. And just the fact that you can be in Kentucky right now, and I can be in Chicago or Boston or California, and we can collaborate with one another without needing to fly physically or drive physically is to me, it's so important. And I don't want it to leave. I don't want this 
facilitative technology spirits that we've cultivated to leave after the pandemic? Absolutely. And that has been the uh, kind of phase that I'm in uh, talking with colleagues and judges is, is what part of this do we want to keep? I mean, what yeah. have lessons have we learned there that definitely to keep? There's some stuff I want to get away from, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and one of them, which this facilitative technology has done is I am overly available, um, <laughs> which, which I want to take away um, yeah. to some, because I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to, to, to make my schedule manage again. But aside from, from that part, it's like, this is just makes so much sense. And it's just so good for everybody as a, you know, a, a business model. You know, if I'm a private practitioner and I can go do a motion docket for somebody um, via Zoom, and although I'll say Kentucky's courts all bought teams. So <laughs> for our unified court system. But, um, you know, if you can participate in a, a motion docket that really is a scheduling kind of thing that, that you don't have to bill your client for that and you don't have any expense to go do it, it it's like that just makes so much sense to so many people. And I think a lot of our courts will keep that that available as an option for a lot of people. And, and it, it should be. Yeah. Um, but the opportunities that it does create, I mean, it's, I made a very controversial observation a few years ago with our Court of Justice, when Kentucky's unified court system causes the, the Kentucky Court of Justice, and that's all of our different levels of court together. It's a collective term for them. What was interesting was I pointed out that in uh, the United Kingdom at the time, they were actually selling courthouse buildings. Um, and they were going back to circuit riding uh, kind of huh. thing. And they were just taking the courts to the communities and using the high school gymnasium or a community center or whatever to do court. And it was an approach that they were taking. And I thought, well, this is just fascinating. We should explore this more. I was met with just complete silence. Um, <laughs> and so looks, and so from an access to justice perspective, I thought that would just increase access. So, it, but in a way, that's what Zoom has done. Absolutely. Um, it's taking court to people and just in a way that it hasn't before. And I, I hope there's aspects of that that we don't lose. Yeah, same here. Very much agreed. And I am aware that you are on the board of the Kentucky Equal Justice Center. And I really like the work that they also do. Uh, and I, I, I was actually just curious to hear about exciting things from your perspective that is going on with the Equal Justice Center? Well, yesterday I was uh, in almost all day uh, <laughs> strategic planning retreat with the Kentucky Equal Justice Center. So, and so I'll tell you that we, we were kind of identified. What is it that, you know, from the pandemic perspective? Is it shifting what we should be doing or how we should be doing things? Or has it just, you know, exacerbated the issues that were already areas that we're involved with? Or, or where were there were there some major needs? And we're still in that phase of, of kind of looking at all of those. But I think that KEJC will be having more of a role in housing issues than they had had uh, for a period of time. Their consumer practice will, I think, start to ramp up again, consumer protection. And our, our, our work around healthcare will continue because there's just a good model that exists there. But exciting opportunities, really looking at food justice, yeah, um, has, is one that we, I think, are expanding what we will be doing uh, in that uh, realm of things. Uh, because, you know, just heartbreaking that I know all of the, the surveys kind of say this, and this was the hardest part for me 
the, especially during the, when schools were not in session, mm-hmm. was people were reporting hunger at higher levels than they had ever reported since I think it was at one of the major polling places had ever kind of surveyed that Gallup had ever surveyed that question. Yeah. And the, the food justice issues was a big deal. Yeah. And it was one that were not passed, trying to, that was just exacerbated by the pandemic. And then it gets worse when you don't have the technology to go in and complete the application. Hmm. Uh, you know, in, in my school district where my kids or our whole county was like, if you want to sign up for the food delivery to your house for school meals is what they were doing. They would drop it off. You had to go online and complete the application the week before. Hmm. Well, if you don't have the ability to go in and complete the application, right. they're not dropping off food. And so that, you know, that's one of those things I think we have to continue to, to explore. But, but KEJC will be uh, expanding that food justice and, and those um, expanding that in even more areas from what they're already doing. We know they do great work. Their policy work that they'll be re- doing related to what we hope is truly transformative housing uh, yeah. issues in Kentucky, I think will be a priority as well. But you hit us right at a good time. It's like, we're, I, I can't, although I don't have great answers because uh, <laughs> we, we haven't finalized the next strategic plan. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, and I, I think all of the options you are exploring right now are incredibly important. Like the food justice piece is is really important. And as you mentioned, the pandemic really highlighted the inadequacies of certain supply chains when it comes to uh, providing food to a greater amount of communities. And then this piece with, uh, you know, like there's, there is a eviction crisis. It's just the question of when and how we will manage it. So it's really important for nonprofits in the legal aid industry broadly to highlight this and to spend time strategizing, which you've been doing about how to manage and mitigate the potential crisis that is facing us. There's so many vulnerable communities right now and housing is just so essential to our being. And for that to be threatened in the aftermath of the pandemic would be a travesty completely. Absolutely. And, you know, last week was the White House Summit on Addictions. Yeah. Um, and so for participating in that, it was in the Lexington focus group, which is not actually where I live. Uh, I don't know if I said this in the beginning, if you drew a line from where I grew up in Monticello, Kentucky, Wayne County, which borders Tennessee, and you drew a line straight up to the top of bordering Ohio, that's where our Covington office is, where I'm headquartered. Um, But uh, Lexington is our uh, largest population center. And so that was the the breakout group that I was in. And so for, for our more urban areas, Northern Kentucky, Lexington, evictions are really there is a crisis that's going to take place. And that's really what it is. In our more rural areas, and in particular, the Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, um, yeah. which we call Apple Red, uh, <laughs> my counterparts here, they said, you know, they don't look, eviction, they, they're not having an eviction crisis, but they are having a housing crisis. And it's the foreclosures for them. And so for a lot of my areas, it's going to be foreclosures. But for these areas that we're looking at evictions, you know, we've got some exciting things that are happening and some partnerships that we're working on. But from the the White House Summit on Evictions that I learned, uh, maybe the the thing I learned the most from from our breakout session was the need to partner 
with landlords hmm. on actually addressing this issue. Yeah. And so, and by that, what I mean is the, was just saying this to the head of a landlord associate apartment association, other executive director. And I was like, I think we both have the same goal here. Mm-hmm. You want to get paid and we want you to get paid so that our people can stay there. Right. So let's figure out the best ways to get the rental assistance money to people. That was really a uh, kind of a thing that, that, that I learned from that on the, the eviction crisis was, was that need to do it. And, you know, talking about technology, you have to figure out a way to administer these funds and how it's going to go and how you apply for all of those things. We're having to set up clinics just to assist people uh, in completing their rental applications documents, because even if you have access to it, although most of our clients are using their phones to do the application, they don't quite have the, the scanning capability of some of the things that they ask for. Yeah. yeah. Just as an aside on the technology thing, and we were we've kind of been tracking what's the most responsiveness that we're getting with trying to have people respond. If you have, have a, uh, an eviction filed in Kentucky, it's called a forcible detainer. When that happens, you're getting some outreach to tell you to complete the rental assistance application. And we've kind of been tracking very rudimentary right now just to what's getting the most response rate, a phone call, email from us. What about if we're sending a Facebook message, that kind of thing. And right now, the most responsiveness that we get is text messages. Interesting. So, so when we text a potential client or somebody that has this and say, you need to complete the, the rental assistance, we get a response back. Interesting. Um, more than any of the others. Probably the Facebook messages are like second. But well, exactly. it was just really fascinating and interesting to me. And then someone uh, said from a trauma-informed care perspective, text messaging, messaging is the best option. Huh. And if you really view eviction as traumatic, which we, we do, and you have all Matthew Desmond's work talking about that, about how traumatic it is, text messaging being the best option. And I just just had that conversation yesterday, so I don't know enough about that as being to speak with any kind of intelligence about it. But but we know that we get the most response to doing it that way. So we're trying to figure out as to how to help the people complete the assistance via text. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes complete sense linking it with trauma because to help the person dealing with trauma, you want to make the communication as simple as possible. You don't want to have a complicated tool to communicate with them, obfuscates the problem solving or the listening that needs to be done to help them deal with the trauma. And so rather than mailing something that they might ignore, text message seems like a effective way to simplify the communication with them to improve their situation. And, you know, uh, absolutely, and from a really, from an access to justice perspective on it, yeah, we're working, but we would love it. And we're just not there yet. If our clerks, that's an elected position in Kentucky, if they would get people's phone numbers yeah. uh, when they actually are having an eviction filed, because I was like, we can really move this along and get these assistance kind of thing happening. But I will say from a positive kind of perspective, if that's not happening on that official end, several of the apartment managers or uh, organizations said, we'll give you the phone numbers. If, you know, we just need to get, uh, you know, if there's a court order that says we can share that, we'll give you the number so that you can reach out to them. So hopefully there's some progress that goes that way. Yeah. Yeah. So I have 
One final question for you. It is the ultimate question. <laughs> <laughs> and that question is what you believe about the future of technology and dispute resolution that very few people believe in your industry. Oh, I have to qualify this statement with a little bit. Yeah. And it's the sense of, I have no social media myself. I, I do no Facebook, no Twitter. I don't have Instagram, TikTok, anything. Um, so it's not something that I use. And, and somewhat intentionally, I decided I wanted to like people several years ago. So I didn't want to know what they thought about everything. Um, <laughs> so I don't have any of those things. But I have a firm belief that the only way that I am going to truly increase access to justice in my community is going to be through some technological means. Mm. And I believe that to stay relevant uh, in people's lives, the justice system is going to have to embrace technology as a way of helping people facilitate solutions. Hmm. You know, if, if, if we don't, it's, you know, we become obsolete in yeah. some way. And I don't know how the justice system could ever become obsolete, but it's just a, a feeling that's, that that's where you go if we don't figure out ways. To yeah. I, it, and it's just a question of what part of the justice system would become obsolete? Like, is it the formal avenue with courts or is it all of it that also includes informal systems? And I think if courts aren't adaptive to all these technologies that stakeholders want to use, they would become the most likely to become obsolete because then there are other options. Like there's alternative dispute resolution and online dispute resolution that could provide disputants with the type of the type of flexibility that technology provides them with. So that is a fascinating answer. It's one that I agree wholeheartedly with. So thank you. And Joshua Crabtree, I just want to say that this past hour was wonderful and it was a complete joy to chat with you. And I'm, I'm still working on my next vacation plan to tour the App Appalachian Trail. So <laughs> take advantage of bourbon. Uh, you're in the <laughs> Kentucky portions of it. Yeah. And it has been a pleasure. I have enjoyed it. And hopefully I added something to the conversation.